0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. And uh, we are picking up again this morning our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we've been in this series for a good chunk of the year. In fact, this morning is the second to last message. In this series, we've made better pace through this series than, uh, than I thought we would. So we've covered a good bit of ground. Uh, we'll wrap up the series next week. But uh, if you're just new today, just jumping in, that's fine. Uh, this is a book, Second Corinthians is a book which is actually a letter. And it's written by a guy called Paul, uh, Paul of Tarsus, around the middle of the first century to a group of people in the, the, the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, and he's writing to this church that's quite dysfunctional. He's got a very troubled relationship with that church. It's all very turbulent. And so he's writing to them to try and rebuild and restore this relationship that he has with them. And we've just worked our way through this letter that he wrote, which is agonizing and uh, frustrating at times and uh, very impassioned. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning, chapter 11 in Second Corinthians, you can be turning over there. But let me just set the scene by saying this passage is really the apex of the whole book. It really rises to a crescendo in this passage because all the way through this book, it's like there's been this pressure building underneath the surface. And Paul's been dropping some hints and he's been saying a few things subtly. Uh, but it's all been building, 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 building. And now you get to the end of the book, chapter 11 chapter 12. We'll look at that in a minute. And it's sort of like this volcanic eruption. And Paul just explodes. And he just lets them have it. He just lets it all out. And he says some astonishing things, some things that I I imagine probably even surprised him as he was saying it. And it all just comes It's actually a remarkable piece of writing, this. And so we're going to read this. It's a reasonable uh, chunk of Scripture. uh, And I, I weighed up whether to do it in two lots, but I want to hold it all together to try and get the sense of this incredible speech that Paul makes. So we'll pick it up from chapter 11, verse 16. And read through chapter 12 to verse 10. So here we go. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. You can hear a bit of sarcasm there? In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. It's hard to know where to breathe in this passage. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In King Damascus, the governor under King Aratas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ. I know a man. He's talking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What a passage, hey! A number of years ago, Anna and I visited a church in the States called Willow Creek Community Church. Some of you might have heard of it. It's one of the bigger churches in in America. Uh, The pastor there, Bill Hybels, famous uh, Christian speaker and author, And we went to a service there one Sunday. It's an amazing facility. You walk in through the lobby, this huge atrium area, and you walk on through to the auditorium. And as we were going into the auditorium, I noticed uh, some couches just outside the auditorium in the foyer space. Pretty unremarkable, just normal couches, these backless benches from what I remember. I didn't think twice about it at the time. But later on, we discovered that these couches have a particular place in the culture of the church. They're fondly referred to as the fool's bench because this is the place where people would sit when they'd invited someone to church and they'd be waiting for that person to show up. And often people would invite someone, they'd invite a neighbor or a colleague or a friend or whoever, and they'd be sitting on the seat and they'd still maybe be waiting 15 minutes into the service. And sometimes the person didn't show up at all. And so the inviter was gutted because that, that extended this invitation. And now they were going to have to have an awkward conversation with that person the next day, and they felt a bit silly. And so these couches became known as the fool's bench, partly because the person felt like a bit of a fool. But in that name, there was an irony that even though this was the fool's bench, it was really a place of great honor. That was the message. It was really a place that was very valuable because this person had taken a brave step, and they'd taken a risk. And they'd reached out to someone else and they'd invited them along. And even though they felt, they, they, they were willing to, to feel a bit silly. They were willing to look like a bit of a fool. But they'd done something that was, in fact, really to be esteemed. And so this fool's bench became a place that the church really valued and honored and esteemed those that were willing to take that step. And they gave it the name, the fool's bench. Now, that's a bit of a symbol for what Paul's doing in this passage. It's like he's coming along and sitting himself down, On the fool's bench. And he says in this passage, he openly says that he's talking like a fool, that he's just becoming a fool. This is often referred to as Paul's fool's speech, that he's he's making himself into a fool. He says toward the beginning of the passage, uh, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. And then at the end of this passage, just after where we stopped reading, he says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. That's a great sermon conclusion right there. (laughs) I've made a fool of myself but it's your fault. (laughs) Amen. Let's go home. And that's what Paul does. He's just playing the fool. He's saying things that are foolish, that sound foolish, probably to him, that certainly sound foolish to the church, that would have sounded foolish to these super apostles that the church was getting themselves all excited about. But there's an irony to it. And that's what you've got to catch to understand what he's saying. This whole speech is deeply ironic that Paul is putting himself in the place of a fool, but in becoming the fool, he's really showing what true wisdom looks like. He's really showing where real strength comes from. He's really showing where real power comes from. He's really showing the source of true grace, but he does it by turning himself into a fool. So I want us just to walk through this speech. It's just an amazing piece of literature. I want us to feel the weight of it To feel the awkwardness of it, to feel a little bit of how it would have been heard when it was read out in church in Corinth. This great apostle boasting in his weaknesses. So, what Paul's doing is boasting. And boasting was just an accepted social convention in the first century. Not so much today, but people boasted all the time. That's what the super apostles had been doing. They'd been boasting in themselves. They'd been boasting in their resume, rolling out their CV, talking up their pedigree. And the Corinthian church, they really wanted Paul to boast. They wanted him to boast so they could be proud of him. So that they could look at all of his accomplishments and that feel good because they had him as their apostle, and they could sort of go, that's our guy. So, so they're kind of egging Paul on, saying, Paul, can't you just engage in a bit of boasting? Can't you talk yourself up a bit? And then we'll follow you, and then we'll be proud of you again. And all through this book, Paul has been saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to boast. I'm not going to boast. I'm not going to boast. And then he gets to this point, and he says, all right, you want me to boast? I'm going to boast. Here it comes. And it's the opposite of what they're wanting. He starts off really well. He says in verse 22, are they Hebrews? He's talking about the super apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Those three things really just all mean the same thing, don't they? He's, he's talking about his Jewish pedigree. He's talking about his Jewishness. He's saying these super apostles, it seems like they were Jews. And he's saying, well, they don't have anything up on me. I've, I'm a Jew as well. I'm a full-blooded Jew. I'm just on exactly the same level as they are. So far, so good, Paul. But then it all takes a horrible turn. And it starts going downhill about verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. He's boasting about what a servant he is now. Can you hear the sarcasm in that? That's like the pastor that got a badge from his congregation saying he was the most humble pastor in the world. And then they took it off him because he wore it. That's kind of what's happening here. Paul's saying, I've worked much harder I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. That, when you think about that, just to pause there, the, the 40 lashes minus one. So at this point in, in his life, Paul is writing this with 195 scars on his back. Isn't that amazing? As he's dictating this letter, he's got 195 scars, and he's not done yet. He would have received the 40 lashes minus one more times in his life yet. This is the kind of stuff he's endured. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Some of this stuff's not even in the Bible. I mean, aside from here. When you read the book of Acts, this is aside from everything else we know about Paul. And we know that there was more to come, but these are in addition to to the stories of Paul's suffering that we already hear in other places. We don't even have the details on some of the stuff. We wish we did, but Paul just alludes to all of this other suffering that he's been through. I've been constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, in danger from the elders, danger from the deacons, danger from the management team. Some of you are awake. All of this stuff he goes through, and you can just hear the Corinthians dying of embarrassment. That's, that's their response, is to just feel like, Paul, we wanted you to make it better, and you've made it infinitely worse. He even gets to the point of making this embarrassing statement in verse 29, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. He's even making the awkward statement that he burns with inner temptation. This was the thing. Boast, when you boasted, in the ancient world, it was okay to mention the difficulties that you face in life. It was okay to mention your sufferings, but you only did that to show how you'd triumphed over them. You only did that to show how you'd prevailed. So it's okay to say I was attacked by this wild animal, but you only did that to say how you then tore that animal to shreds with your bare hands. But Paul doesn't do that. He only stays on the weakness side of the ledger. He, you don't get any of the stuff about how he's prevailed and how he's triumphed and how he's conquered. It's all just struggle. It's all just weakness. It's all just the difficulties that he's faced. And the Corinthians just would have been dying of embarrassment. This is not the apostle they wanted. This is not the kind of boasting they were hoping for. We don't even know whether Paul's relationship with this church ever recovered from this point. So, why does he do this? Why does Paul take this strategy, boasting in his weakness? Well, this is more than just about boasting. This is not just a moral lesson about don't boast. What Paul's doing is really striking at the heart of the whole worldview that these Christians had bought into. The worldview of the super apostles, the worldview in many ways of Corinth itself. And he's turning that whole worldview upside down. If you think about the Roman world of Paul's day, socially it was like one big giant ladder. And everybody had a place on the ladder. And it was all ranked according to status and power and position and wealth and means and connections. And at the top of the ladder was the emperor, the highest position of power and authority. At the lowest rung of the ladder were slaves and invalids. And everyone else had a rank somewhere in between. Everyone was sitting on some rung of the ladder. And the rung that you had coming into life was largely determined by your family, your family connections. It was determined by whether you were a Roman citizen or not determined by the kind of level of wealth your family had, your gender, your culture, whether you had slaves or not, whether you had land or not, and you had this rung. And the goal of life was to try and move up a few rungs, try and get as high on that ladder as you could. And one of the ways you did it was by boasting. One of the ways you did it was by talking yourself up and hiring other people to boast for you. It's like the ancient equivalent of PR people. You you hire people, you pay people to talk about you and write about you and be your personal publicity assistants. And this was how you gained a bit more honor for yourself and in the process tried to push a few other people down. The only way to get further up the ladder was by trampling over the people underneath. You'd clamor to the top, you'd try and manipulate people, use people, gain a bit of social advantage, wait for your opportunity and see if you can get one more rung up the ladder. And what Paul does... As he comes along and he refuses to play that game. The Corinthians are wanting him to climb up that ladder as high as he can. And what Paul does is he comes along and sits on the bottom rung. And he says, I'm happy there. He comes along and sits on the fool's bench. Why? Because that's where Jesus sat. See, what Paul is doing is embodying the way of Jesus. And just as Paul is sitting on the bottom rung of the ladder, he's showing that Jesus himself took the bottom rung rather than the top. Could have taken the top rung, but he came along in weakness. He came to us in powerlessness. He came to us in humility. And especially in his death, Jesus died a death of utter and complete weakness. We've sung about it this morning. He was humiliated. He was degraded. He was dehumanized. The cross was the most agonizing, inhumane form of execution in history. It was horrific. Jesus was crucified in absolute weakness. At the heart of our faith is this picture of abject weakness and powerlessness. And yet in that act of weakness, God proved himself strong. In that act of weakness, God worked to bring about an incredible victory, a victory over sin, a victory over Satan, a victory over evil, a victory over all the principalities and powers, a victory over the forces of darkness. God worked through the weakness of the cross to establish his kingdom, to bring about a new world, to open up a new future, to make reconciliation possible between us and God, all through the weakness of the cross. So at the heart of our faith, At the heart of the Christian worldview is this picture of incredible strength in the midst of incredible weakness, incredible victory coming about through defeat. It's this paradox of of wisdom in foolishness, strength in weakness, power in the midst of powerlessness, honor in the midst of shame, victory through defeat. That's the message of the cross. And so Jesus has now brought about this new reality which operates by completely different principles than the way of the world, not by that big social ladder, but now through strength in weakness. That's what Jesus embodied. That's what Paul is seeking to embody. Doesn't mean that you can't have power. Doesn't mean that you can't have authority. Doesn't mean you can't achieve things. Doesn't mean you shouldn't go after great things. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have strengths. But it means that it's okay to sit on the bottom rung of the ladder sometimes. It's okay to be weak sometimes. That is no lesser in God's eyes than a position of power and a position of authority. Weakness was so shunned in the ancient world, but God lifts up those on the bottom rung of the ladder. And he shows that the ones who grasp onto their own strength and just cling to their own power, And build their life on their own success. They are the ones. They are the ones who really are exposed as fools in God's eyes. But those who can own up to their own weaknesses. Those who can confront their own weakness and their brokenness and their woundedness and come to terms with that and be real about that before God and before other people. They are the ones who are truly strong in God's eyes. Those are the ones who have true honor. Those are the ones who have real wisdom. And those are the ones who really experience God's power. Now that's a radical message in Paul's day to say that there is strength that is found in the midst of weakness, that true strength comes about in the midst of weakness. And it's just as radical in our day. Our culture looks a bit different in some ways to the culture of Corinth and the culture of the first century, but there are similarities. We don't quite have that same rigid social ladder today, but we live in a world that is incredibly self-obsessed. One author calls our culture the age of the big me, That's where we're living. We used to have a culture where we valued humility. Humility was a virtue, but today we have a culture where we encourage people to think of themselves as the absolute center of the universe, the center of the world, with everything else and everyone else revolving around them. Our culture tends to be, in our Western culture, heavily narcissistic. That means that we are self-obsessed. Narcissism is an unhealthy obsession with the self where we really can't see beyond our own life and our own values and our own priorities. We live in this narcissistic world. By one survey, narcissism has increased by 30% over the past two decades. We're just far more self-obsessed than we used to be. Among millennials, that's people under about 30 years of, old, years of age, few of you here, millennials. Millennials now rank fame as the second-to-highest life goal that they have, second-to-highest priority in life, is fame, gathering recognition, being seen by other people, having mass attention. A couple of decades ago, fame was almost last. And now it's one of the highest goals that young people have in life, is to be famous. So you have this narcissistic, self-obsessed, self-promoting culture, and it fuels the rise of things like YouTube, where we can broadcast just everyday stuff in our life to the world for everyone to see. It's our stage on which we can perform. It fuels the rise of reality TV, where ordinary normal people become the center of attention for everyone else, nationally, internationally. And of course, it fuels the rise of social media. It's not an anti-Facebook rant. I'm on Facebook. Facebook's fine. Facebook's got its place. But what we need to understand is that in a culture that is already narcissistic, What happens when you add something like Facebook to the mix? It can be used in healthy ways, but in a narcissistic culture, Facebook can be like pouring fuel on the fire. And it just promotes this idea that we really are the center of the world. Yes, it can be used in all kinds of really helpful and constructive ways, but it can also just keep playing that song in our heads that we really are a really big deal, and the rest of the world really should revolve around us, that everyone else really should be as interested in my life as I am. And this is the kind of stuff that we are being fed in our self-promoting, self-obsessed culture. In the midst of this kind of culture, what place do we have for weakness? How do we see weakness? It's something to be hidden, isn't it? It's something to be covered over, and we need to do our best to project a persona to the world that has as little weakness in it as possible. That's why you always put your very, very best photos on Facebook, isn't it? That's why I know you, I know you do this. You even tweak them a little bit before you put them up, don't you? A little bit of color, a little bit of contrast. You just have a little play around with them. And then you put, we want to present the very best self, the very best version of ourselves to the world. And weakness, our weaknesses, our struggles, these are something to be hidden away. We don't want to talk about them. We don't want to name them. We don't want to go there. We just need to just have those quietly in a corner and just try and ignore them. But Jesus does not come and fit into our comfortable Middle class structure of existence. Jesus does not play by the rules of our narcissistic culture. He completely challenges the paradigm, he turns it upside down and says that the greatest strength is found in weakness. That weakness has tremendous value in God's eyes, it has a special place. And a special privilege because it's the point in our lives where God does his greatest work. Again, nothing wrong with having power, authority, wealth, means, resources, any of that stuff. But the gospel says to us it's okay to sit on the fool's bench. It's okay to be weak. We don't have to hide our weaknesses. We don't have to cover over our weaknesses and feel ashamed We can be honest about these things before God because then it brings us into a place where God can and will do his greatest work. Now, Paul shows us a little bit about what it means to experience strength and weakness. It doesn't mean to go around just criticizing ourselves. Please don't hear that. This is not just, you know, we insult ourselves all the time. We tell everyone else how terrible we are. That, it's not about self-rejection. It's not about negative self-esteem. It's not the road we're going down. Paul himself actually models what strength and weakness looks like. As he goes into verse, uh, chapter 12, he tells us the story of when he was taken to heaven. 14 years earlier, he says, I know a man who was taken to heaven, but he's really talking about himself. He's just talking about it in the third person because he doesn't want to appear arrogant, which in itself is a good lesson. He's being a little bit self-effacing. He's not just talking himself up. He's just taking a little bit of the shine off it by talking about this in the third person. But he'd obviously had this amazing experience where God actually transported him into paradise, into heaven. I mean, that would be an incredible thing to boast about. Paul had plenty that he could have boasted about if he had wanted to. So he puts this out there, talking about it in the third person. But then he says in verse 7, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on trying to guess what this thorn in the flesh was that Paul struggled with. He doesn't tell us. Some people think it was his singleness And he was susceptible to sexual temptation because he was single. Other people think maybe it was his lack of public speaking skills, but we don't know. And if Paul had wanted us to know, he would have told us. So it's not worth focusing on that. If anything, what this should do is cause us to ask the question of our own lives. What is our thorn in the flesh? That's what this passage is designed to do, is to get us thinking about what are the thorns in our flesh that we experience? What are the areas of weakness that we experience in our lives, those things that just press into us and wound us, and we feel like they hold us back and make life difficult and painful. It may be a circumstance that you're going through, could be a really tough family situation where there's strain that's coming on family relationships and the dynamics are getting really hard and there's difficult conversations and relationships have just gone weird and it's just tough going with family. It might be a health situation. You just literally got something in your flesh, That is so difficult, and you just are desperate to be free of it. You're desperate to move beyond it, but but you can't, and the healing that you're praying for is not coming along, and maybe for you, maybe for a family member, it's just a hard, hard season. Maybe it's a financial difficulty. Maybe the thorn in the flesh is on the inside. So much pain around mental health, mental and emotional health. Maybe it is the thorn in the flesh of depression. Maybe it's the thorn in the flesh of anxiety, these deep and difficult battles within ourselves They can often be so hidden, and no one else may know that you're going through it. And sadly, with this stuff, there's so much stigma attached to it, which is so sad, especially in the church, that that would ever be the case. But so many people struggling, one in four people struggling with some form of mental illness. And we carry these wounds We carry these thorns in the flesh. Sometimes we just don't know what to do and we just feel utterly broken and utterly weak. The battle might be on the outside, it might be on the inside, but we every one of us in this room, we could just pass the microphone around and each talk about a thorn in the flesh that we're experiencing. And Paul shows us how to respond to these thorns in the flesh. What did he do? Well, first of all, he prayed. He said, I, I asked the Lord three times to take this thorn in the flesh away. So it's good and it's right to pray to God about these things. Just because we're talking about strength and weakness doesn't mean we don't ask God to take away the things that we find hard. We pray about those things. Paul did. He asked God, take away this thorn in the flesh. God, I hate this situation. I hate this is happening to me. I hate this is in my family. I hate that I'm in this financial mess. that we're I hate that I, I don't know how to make this decision. We can pray. We should pray. Whatever this weakness is that's in your life, have you genuinely, have you honestly brought it to God in prayer and sought His wisdom and asked for His help and asked Him to intervene in this situation? We should be praying about these things. But look at God's response. In verse 9, but He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So God didn't answer Paul's prayer. He didn't take the thorn away. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, what God says is, Paul, I'm going to give you something greater. I'm going to show you the sufficiency of my grace. I'm going to show you that I am enough, even with that thorn pressing into your flesh. I'm going to show you, Paul, that I am enough for you. It's a hard passage to hear, I think, because we're still, I think we're still stuck in this way of thinking about the Christian life, where we want to see it as being a journey from weakness into strength. We want to believe that when we're in a situation of weakness, that God's intention is to get us out of the situation of weakness and put us into a situation of strength where this is under control, where my finances are under control, where my family is under control, where my health is under control. We want to think that God's promise is moving out of weakness and into strength. But what we miss is that the Christian life is not a journey from weakness into strength. It's a journey of discovering God's strength in the midst of weakness. Discovering God's power in the midst of our powerlessness. Discovering God's strength when we are absolutely at the end of ourselves and completely spent. God doesn't promise that He will rescue us from every situation we encounter. He doesn't promise that He'll lift us out of every weakness, but He promises something greater. He promises us Himself. He promises us that He will come to us in our weakness and show us how sufficient His grace really is. Because when you're in a position of strength, when things are relatively good, relatively under control, You can sing a song like that one that we sang this morning, Christ is Enough, and you can say it and you can mean it at one level, but you're not experiencing it. It's only when other things get stripped away in your life. It's only when there's a number of things now that are outside of your control and life gets hard and things that you were relying on suddenly aren't there anymore and the ground under your feet just starts getting really shaky. Then you're in a place of weakness and then you start to know what those words mean. And then you you come face to face with whether you can say that honestly or not. Christ is enough. We don't experience the sufficiency of God's grace in the midst of strength, only in the midst of weakness. That's why your weaknesses are so important to God. Not because He wants to make your life miserable, not because He's just a killjoy, but because there are things that we learn about God and gifts that we receive from God in our place of weakness that we will not receive in a place of strength. There are things that God has to teach you about himself that he will only teach you when you are weak and not when you are strong, because that's the only time that you might be willing to listen to it. So we are so desperate to get ourselves out of weakness, and it's okay to pray for that and to move forward and make good decisions, and we should, but sometimes we can miss what God is doing in the midst of the weakness. That's where he's working. That's where God's doing his best work in your life right now or wanting to. Did you realize that? Right in the midst of your weakness. It's in the battle. It's in the fight. It's in the anguish of your soul. It's in the pain and the difficulty. It's right at that point where God's grace is going to meet you. Not after it all gets better. Not on the other side. There's so much talk about living the victorious Christian life and triumphing over this and conquering that and getting past adversity. We are conquerors in the midst of, of our difficulties by the grace of God. Not after it's all finished. You don't know whether it's going to get better tomorrow or worse. But regardless, God's grace is sufficient for you. And what God wants you to know more than anything else is that in the midst of what you're going through, He is going to sustain you. If you'll open your heart to Him, He is going to hold you. And He is going to secure you. And He is going to walk with you through that. That's what He wants you to grasp and experience more than anything else. And so my encouragement, my challenge to you is that in that place of weakness that you're in to start praying a different kind of prayer. And this is hard. It's okay to pray, God, please fix this. It's okay to pray, God, please get me out of this. But alongside that, are you willing to pray a different kind of prayer? Are you willing to pray, God, your grace is sufficient for me? That's a hard thing to pray. Your grace is sufficient for me. God, I pray that you would fix this mess that I'm in. I pray that you would sort my business out and rescue this from collapse. But even if you don't, your grace is sufficient for me. God, I pray that you would sort my kids out And that you would put them back on the right path and rescue them from these terrible decisions they're making, which I fear are ruining their own lives. But God, whatever happens, your grace is sufficient for me. God, we pray for a baby. We pray that you would give us a child. But however this journey ends, your grace is sufficient. That's hard to say, isn't it? And it's okay to pray the prayer for the desire of your heart, but are you willing alongside that to pray, however the story ends, God, your grace is sufficient for me. Because I know God's power is made perfect, not in my strength, but in my weakness. As we're willing to pray that kind of prayer, open ourselves up, it becomes a little bit easier to then share our struggles with each other. We become a little bit more willing to actually talk about our weaknesses as Paul did openly with other people, inappropriate, in appropriate ways. But to be honest, when was the last time you said to someone, I'm struggling? It's not easy. The words don't come naturally. But to say to someone else, I'm battling with this. We're so concerned just to have it all together. We want, we want to wear the mask. We want to have the persona. Even in church, right? When you come into church, we shake each other's hand. How are you doing? Hey, oh, great. Big smiles. It's all wonderful. You could have had the biggest fight With your husband or wife on the way to church in the car, you could be feeling in terrible headspace, but we still just feel like got to have the cheesy grin, got to have the cheesy Christian grin on when I come to church. We've got to learn to let down. It's okay to sit on the bottom rung sometimes. It's okay to sit on the fool's bench. It's okay not to be okay sometimes. And we've got to be willing to let a few other people in and say, I'm struggling with this. Can you say those words? Should we all just say it together? I'm struggling. Ready? One, two, three. I'm struggling. It's hard, isn't it? You're struggling. I'm struggling. Are you willing to find some other people and let them in on that and say, this is a battle that I'm losing right now. This is an area of my life that I'm failing in right now. This is something that I'm just really battling with and draw some other people close. You'll you'll open your life up to some encouragement that otherwise might not be there, some prayer that otherwise might not be there, and it just opens your heart. It puts you in a vulnerable space before other people and before God. As we do this, as we learn to walk in this way, this road of strength in the midst of weakness, and we limp along with these thorns pressing into our flesh, we've got to remember that there was another man who experienced thorns in his flesh. There was a man who experienced a crown of thorns pressing into his flesh. Jesus has been there. He's experienced thorns in his flesh too, quite literally. He's experienced weakness, so he knows what you're going through. He knows the difficulties and the heartache and the burden. And he comes to you in the midst of that, and that's why he can offer you empathy that he understands and he enters right into the midst of it and he sits on that bottom rung of the ladder with you when you are not feeling strong at all. And he just sits with you and wraps his arm around you. And he shares that burden with you. And Jesus, because of the cross, has secured a future in which one day all of that's going to be taken away. One day when Christ returns, there'll be no more weakness. One day all the failure that we experience in our life all the heartache we experience in our families, all of the difficulties and the burdens, all that one day is going to melt away when Jesus returns. There's going to be a world where we, just are, we are whole people and we are fully healed in every way and we're fully restored and our relationships are fully restored and we're absolutely perfected in the image of God. All brokenness taken away. All weakness taken away. All woundedness taken away. But that day's not here yet. And until that day, we've got to learn to walk with our wounds. we are got to learn to walk with our brokenness. we are got to learn to realize that our weaknesses can be our greatest strength. That our wounds can be our greatest glory. They were for Jesus. His wounds were His glory. He didn't hide them after His resurrection from His disciples. He walked into that room and He held out His arms with the nail piercings in them. His wounds were His glory. And our wounds... Can be our glory too if we see them as part of the beauty that God is bringing about in our lives. We don't always have to hide and cover up and be ashamed of weakness, but we've got to see it as the place where God is most at work. Are you willing to pray that brave prayer? Your grace is sufficient for me. Are you willing to believe that last line that Paul wrote? That when I am weak, then. I am strong. I'm not sure in my life that I've really grasped that yet. Because I feel like when I'm in control, then I'm strong. And when things are good, then I'm strong. And when I'm confident, then I'm strong. But I want to learn the truth of that statement. That when I'm weak, then I am strong. I think when we grasp that and we lean into the reality and the mystery of what those words mean, we will have a new view of ourselves. We'll have a new view of our weaknesses and we'll have a new view of Jesus and of life. Let's learn to embrace the strength that God offers us in the midst of the weaknesses that we're experiencing in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for those right now who feel weak and burdened down with the things of life. Lord, you know each person here today. You know the stories. You know the struggles. I want to lift up, Lord. We, all, we each want to lift up our brothers and sisters here, Lord, that are carrying heavy burdens today, Father. And just pray now for the special empowering of your Holy Spirit. Lord, those that just have that sense this morning, that they are, they're just broken. They just don't have any more strength. Don't have much left. Don't know the way to go. Lord, those whose hearts are heavy today, we pray that you would visit them with your grace. We want to pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just descend upon them bring a new strength into their life. God, we want to pray that even now they would know deeply and truly the sufficiency of your grace. I pray that they would be able to hear those words that you spoke to your apostle, spoken over their life now in this moment, that they would hear you saying to them, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It's okay. It's okay that you're sitting on the bottom rung of the ladder. You don't have to keep trying. You don't have to try and pull yourself out of the pit. You don't have to try and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's okay to sit there. And allow God to minister his grace to you. Father, I pray you do that now. I pray you'd just pour out your healing grace. I pray you'd show yourself to be strong to those who are feeling weak this morning. I pray you'd show yourself to be powerful on behalf of those who are feeling powerless in this moment. And I pray they would discover right there at their point of weakness, their point of brokenness, their point of woundedness, they would discover that you are enough that you are sufficient, that you are good. And Father, as we move forward from this day, as we move forward from this morning, Lord, we are carrying scars, we are carrying wounds, and we're limping forward, every one of us, God, no matter where we are in life, we're all just limping in some way. God, just help us to be a little bit more open with each other about that. Not to have to feel that we always need to wear the mask. Lord, I feel it, but God, I just want to, I want to be free of it, and I pray that we would be free of it as a church, that we'd be willing just to be open and vulnerable with each other and to be able to bear our scars and our wounds and to know that they are part of the beautiful mess that you're making of our lives. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you that you are making something beautiful out of our lives I just think of that song it says something beautiful something good all my confusion he understood all I had to offer him was brokenness and strife but he made something beautiful out of my life would you come and do it again Lord in our lives for Christ's sake